ministry, he was shipwrecked three times. And he spent a day and a night adrift in the sea waiting to be rescued. And in his first letter to Timothy, Paul gave us a warning. Not about physical shipwrecks like the loss of Titanic, but about spiritual shipwrecks. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Paul reminds us that we're waging a battle against the forces of darkness. And that means we have to be on the alert. We have to cling to our faith and keep our consciences clear. And if we don't, it's possible that we can make a shipwreck of our faith. And honestly, that's always stuck with me. I've heard uh, godly men and women say, I want to live a faithful life, and I want to finish strong. I want to meet Jesus face to face, and I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I pray that's your desire too. But as I read this warning from Paul, he's saying, watch out. It's entirely possible for your life to veer off course. You can ignore the warnings, you can ignore the dangers, and instead of a strong finish, there's a catastrophe. There's a shipwreck. And I find myself asking, how can that happen? And how can I keep it from happening in my life? And I think that's why God shares so many stories of real men and women. Some of them were heroes of the faith. We can read their stories and we can be encouraged. We can imitate their faith. We can become better Christians by following in their footsteps. But God also gives us stories of those whose faith faltered in the end. Those who burned brightly at the beginning, but they drifted further and further away until they ruined their witness and much, much more. King Solomon is one of those shipwreck stories. And that might come as a surprise to you. Uh, we like to remember how King Solomon prayed for wisdom, how he built the temple, and how God blessed the kingdom as he reigned. But his life ended in a shipwreck. And the people of God were still feeling the effects hundreds of years after he was dead and buried. So I want us to look at his life and I want us to learn from his mistakes. How can we finish strong and avoid the danger of a shipwrecked faith? 
Turn with me uh, to the book of 1 Kings. This is one of the Old Testament history books, beginning with David's last days, and then it tells the story of King Solomon's reign. And I want us to skim quickly through the early chapters so we can see how Solomon walked in his father's footsteps. He loved God, and he put God first in everything he did, but all of that changed in chapter 11, and that's where we will be spending most of our time today. But I want us to begin in chapter 2. King David has chosen Solomon to be his successor, and these are David's last words and instructions. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn. David gave this charge to Solomon as he's lying on his deathbed. As you take the throne, son, walk with God. Keep his laws. That's a legacy of faith. And as we follow Solomon's reign, we see how he grows into a man of humility and faith. In chapter 3, we read how God appeared to Solomon in a dream. And he said, Solomon, what, what do you want? What's your heart's desire? If you ask for it, I'll give it to you. And Solomon confessed that he was young and he was inexperienced and he prayed for wisdom so that he could lead the people in a way that was pleasing to God. And beginning in verse 10, this is how God responded. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father walked, then I will lengthen your days." And as you keep reading, you'll see how Solomon's wisdom grew. He decided difficult legal cases. He wrote thousands of poems and songs and proverbs, and many of them are preserved for us in the pages of Scripture. And in chapter 6, Solomon begins building the temple. Up to this point, the people have been worshiping in the tabernacle, which was a tent that was taken from place to place. But God gave his people a land of their very own and rest 
from their enemies. And Solomon built a temple so God could dwell in the midst of his people. And when the temple was completed, Solomon prayed a prayer of dedication and blessing that's recorded for us in chapter 8. And here's how he ends his prayer. And he stood up and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promises, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord, our God, day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as to this day. But as beautiful and as powerful as this prayer is, it's also disheartening. Because by the time we get to chapter 11, Solomon's faith is in serious danger. So if you'll turn with me to chapter 11, we'll read these first eight verses together. And this will be our, our chief text. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of his father David was. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And he did so for all his foreign wives who made their offerings and sacrificed to their gods. A little bit of the backstory: David reigned over what's known as the United Kingdom, all 12 tribes of Israel under one king with Jerusalem as its capital. And when David died, his son Solomon took the throne. And the kingdom grew. Solomon built a fleet of ships that he used 
to trade overseas. He secured Israel's borders by making treaties with neighboring countries. And because there was peace, he was able to have a thriving trade with his neighbors. And the country became very, very wealthy during his reign. But chapter 11 tells us the terrible price he paid to make all this growth and wealth possible. He fell into idolatry, and the rest of the country followed. And it began with this. He rationalized his sin. He rationalized his sin. In Old Testament times, it was common for a king who was making a treaty with a country to marry into the royal family of that country. And we know from our text that Solomon made treaties with Egypt, Moab, Ammon, and many other countries. And he married princesses from each of those countries. That was the custom. And I'm sure nobody in any of those countries raised an eyebrow when he did. As far as the world was concerned, it was perfectly okay. But God had something to say about it. And you can see it for yourself in verse 2. This commandment comes from the book of Deuteronomy, and it's actually directed specifically at the king. You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. God gave a command. Don't marry any of the women from the countries around you. And he even said why. They'll bring their pagan gods with them and they'll draw you away from worshiping the living God. This was a command of God, not a suggestion. And our response as believers is to obey what God has commanded through his word. In fact, Jesus said that our obedience is a measure or a yardstick of our love. Remember what he told the disciples in the upper room? If you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. But let's be honest. We don't always obey, do we? We have ways of rationalizing our sin so we feel better about it and we feel comfortable with it. I really like this quote from R.C. Sproul. Listen, this is convicting. We come to our Bibles with this presupposition. Whatever the Bible may be saying, it can't be telling me that my life needs to be changed. Wherever the Bible calls for change, it must be addressing someone else. Our eyes roam across the very words of God in Scripture, but our minds change what we read into something safe, something reasonable, something inoffensive. Now, I don't know what Solomon might have said to himself when he was deciding if he should marry these foreign women, but I have some guesses. I've heard some of these in my years of ministry. And honestly, I've said some of these same things myself. All of us are vulnerable. All of us, including me. Here's a popular one. 
All the other kings are doing it. Look around, God. This is how it's done all over the world. All the other kings can intermarry. Why can't I? Sounds like something a kid would say, I know, but grown-ups say it too. We act like we can overturn God's law by popular vote, right? If enough people disobey, well, maybe God didn't really mean what he said. Can I put that to rest for you? God sets the standard for what's right and what's wrong, and he always means what he says. You and I don't get a vote. <laughs> Here's another one. This isn't about religion, God. This is about politics. God, I'm, I'm happy to follow your rules any other time, but when it's politics, I follow their rules. What are we saying? God is only God over religious things, whatever that means. But he's not God over you fill in the blank, right? We're trying to box God out so that he doesn't have any authority over this thing. He might have authority over here, but he doesn't have any authority over here where it really matters to me. I'll make this easy for you. Do you remember Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. He's God over that, okay? And he has authority over that. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. And he has authority over all of it. You and I can't carve out exceptions. How about this one? I can handle it, God. I've got this sin under control. I can hear Solomon saying, Look, I'm the king of Israel. I have God-given wisdom. I've written Proverbs. I've written books full of wisdom. If anyone can handle this, I can. That's pride. That's pride, pure and simple, and we all fall prey to it. We think we've all got the right stuff to keep sin close without it affecting us. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 asks, a simple question. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not get burned? And the answer is no. <laughs> no, you can't. I don't care how smart you think you are. Sin is fire, and if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Stop rationalizing. Stop making excuses for why you think God's law doesn't apply to you. We act like God's unfair. Like he's a killjoy. Like he's keeping us from something that we might enjoy. But no, listen, listen. God's laws are guardrails that keep us from falling over a cliff. God's laws keep us safe and they keep us pure. I want to share a passage that'll help you. Uh, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You could spend a year in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy and still not pull all of the nuggets out, the great nuggets of truth. 
But beginning in verse 6, Moses says, When your children ask you, what's the meaning of the commandments God has given us? This is how you should answer. And, and he be, walks them through their history with God. How God brought them out of slavery. How he performed signs and wonders. How he promised them a land of their very own and he brought them into that land. And then he says in verses 24 and 25, and I'm reading this from the, uh, the NLT. I think it's easier to understand. Here's what he says. And the Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so he can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as he has done to this day. For we will be counted as righteous when we obey all the commands the Lord our God has given us. If you're ever struggling with temptation, read these verses. Why does God give us commandments to follow? Here's the answer. God wants to bless us. He wants the best for us. And his commandments chart a course for our lives that will bring blessing. Why does God give us commandments to follow? To protect us. To preserve us. God is keeping us safe from all of life's traps and landmines. His commandments keep us safe. Why does God give us commandments to follow? Look at verse 25. He wants us to reflect His righteousness. If you're a child of God, He wants you to grow up in your faith so that you'll reflect His image more and more every single day. And if you obey God's commands, you'll be a witness to the world around you and you'll bring joy to God's heart. Solomon knew all of these things. But unfortunately, he compromised. He rationalized his sin. And the result was exactly what you would expect. Sin bent his heart. Sin bent his heart. When you're saved, God works a miracle in your heart. Theologians call it regeneration. Your heart used to be stony. It used to be as hard as a rock. And you didn't have the slightest interest in God or spiritual things. And do you know who was sitting on your heart's throne? King me. It was always me, me, me. The only thing that mattered was getting your way. The only desire you had was to satisfy yourself. But God changed your heart from the inside out. You used to have a stony heart, but God gave you a heart of flesh. A heart that's alive. A heart that's sensitive to the things that the Holy Spirit is saying and doing. And God changed the desires of your heart. Instead of King me, it's King Jesus. He's the one on the throne. And he changed the things that you loved and cared for. Listen to how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working 
in your heart to give you godly desires and godly appetites. What matters most to you now is living in a way that's pleasing to God. I got a great quote here from Charles Spurgeon. It wouldn't feel right if I didn't quote from uh, Sir Charles. Um, Here's what he says. Observe what God works in us. He works in us to will, the desire after holiness, the resolution to put down sin, the pang of grief that comes when we do sin, the stern resolve that we have that we will not fall into that sin again. All, all is of God, and he who gave the desire will surely fulfill it. So with that in mind, let's turn back to our text. Once Solomon compromised the truth of God's word and opened up the door for sin, something happened to his heart. The writer says it twice. Look at verse 3 and again in verse 4. His wives turned away his heart. The word that's used here, the word that's translated turned away, literally means to bend or to twist or even to pervert. So the idea is that Solomon loved God and was walking faithfully, walking with integrity, but then his wives bent and turned that desire. What was once a pure, undefiled love for God became polluted, perverted. So instead of a heart that's desiring holiness and pleasing God with holy living, his heart became bent. And now he's desiring the sin more than he's desiring God. And that is a dangerous place to be. Turn back to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6.5, this is probably familiar to you. This is the verse Jesus quoted when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment that God has given? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God is our highest love. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, and might, with every part of our being. Now, you've heard me say this many different times, that love is more than a feeling, okay? Love is a verb. Love proves itself. Love acts. Love moves. And that's true when it comes to our love for God. Here's how one commentator explained what this kind of love looks like. God wants you to love him, to passionately and righteously pursue his glory. So let me stop and ask a question. I'll put you on the hot seat. How's your love? Can you honestly say that you have a wholehearted love for God? Are you passionately pursuing God's glory? Are you faithfully following God's commands day by day? Because you know that a life of righteousness will bring glory and honor and praise to God. Here's what I know. If you let sin bend your heart, you can't love like that. Your heart isn't lined up 
with God. It's bent. The desires of your heart have become twisted and turned. You're loving God with some of your heart, some of your soul, and some of your might, and the rest of your heart is loving your sin. You're loving God with some of your heart, some of your mind, some of your soul, and you're convinced that everything is okay, but it's not okay. Listen, the devil has a goal for you. The devil's goal is to occupy as much of your heart and life as possible and to inflict maximum carnage. And once you've given sin a toehold in your life, the devil will scratch and claw to win more and more of your heart. Look with me at verse 5 of our text. Look what happens next in Solomon's life. He began pursuing his sin. He began pursuing his sin. Up to this point, we've seen Solomon rationalize his sin. He's let sin bend his heart and desires, but now he begins to act out those desires. Verse 5 tells us that Solomon went after these foreign gods. It means he pursued them. He chased them. He followed in their footsteps. So what did this look like in Solomon's life? Well, we can't say for certain. The text doesn't tell us. But I can make some educated guesses. What, what, what do you think it might have looked like at the beginning? Listen, one of his wives was from Sidon. Maybe that wife asked Solomon to pray with her. Not to the Lord, but to Ashtoreth, the false god that she worshipped. Maybe his Moabite wife had Solomon read from the holy book of her god, Chemosh. Maybe his Ammonite wife taught Solomon a praise song to her god, Moloch. And over time, listen, over time, he became comfortable with these things. So comfortable that he began enjoying them and seeking them out. Sabbath days were for worshiping the Lord, of course, but maybe, just maybe, he could fit Ashtoreth on Mondays. Maybe he could fit commotion Moloch into his schedule too, and before long, he was spending more time with the false gods than he was with the true and the living God. Let me back up for a minute. Scripture has a lot to say about the things we should be pursuing. David sang a beautiful song in 1 Chronicles 16. That's when he brought the ark into the tabernacle for the first time. And in verse 11, he gives us this simple reminder. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. What should a Christian be pursuing? We should be pursuing the Lord. We should be pursuing His strength, His presence. How? Continually. It's the same word that's used in Leviticus chapter 6 talking about the fire that burns on the altar in the tabernacle. 
This is what it says. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. That's how we're supposed to pursue the Lord. Continually. Day by day. Moment by moment. We never quit. We never give up. And we see the same thing in the New Testament. I could pick lots of different verses. But I like this one from Colossians chapter 3. Paul says... If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So again, what are we supposed to pursue? We seek Jesus. We seek His will, His ways, His commands. The same way that a compass points north Everything in our life should point to Jesus. We follow after Jesus and not the gods of this world. So let me ask you a question. Are you more like David or are you more like Solomon? Are you pursuing God or are you pursuing your sin? I'm going to stop here and I'm going to press you. I want to ask you some questions that might make you uncomfortable. But listen, there is a very real danger of shipwreck in this life. And God is warning us, watch out. Check your life. And make sure you're pursuing the right things. I don't know what your sin might be. The Holy Spirit will show you. It could be pornography. It could be jealousy or anger, it could be unforgiveness, it could be an ungodly thought life. Whatever your sin might be, are you pursuing it? Here are a few questions that might help you answer that. Do you find yourself thinking about your sin throughout the day? Is the time you spend with your sin crowding out the time you spend with God? Does it feel like you're getting more enjoyment out of your sin than you are from your relationship with God? Is coming to church hard because you know there's sin in your life that you haven't dealt with? When was the last time you had an honest heart-to-heart -heart talk with God about your sin? Or are you trying to keep it hidden? I've seen this quote many, many times. I don't know who said it first, but I know it's true. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. And that's exactly what happened in Solomon's life he began publicly living out his sin. Publicly living it out. Most of Solomon's idolatry was behind closed doors in the palace until we get to verse 7. And here we see everything brought out into the open. He began building high places for all of these false gods. High places were shrines. They were places of worship that were built on hilltops. And every high place that he built was dedicated to one of these 
false gods. And an altar was put in the center where sacrifices could be made to that false god. And now Solomon and his wives worshipped these false gods openly on the hillsides outside of Jerusalem. Listen, in full view of the temple and in full view of God's people. And as bad as that is, I want to add one more thing. If you look at verse 7, you'll see that Kamosh is referred to as the abomination of Moab. And Moloch is referred to as the abomination of the Ammonites. There's a reason for that. Worshippers of Kamosh and Moloch practiced child sacrifice. Something God condemned in the harshest of words. So Solomon, the good king, Solomon, the wise king, ended his life as an idol worshiper and as a promoter of the vilest form of idolatry. Here's how Matthew Henry sums up the end of Solomon's life. How strange that so good a man, so zealous for the worship of God, who had been so conversant with divine things, and who prayed that excellent prayer at the dedication of the temple, should do these sinful things. Is this Solomon? Have all his wisdom and devotion come to this at last? Never, listen, never was a ship so wrecked. Never was a crown so profaned. That's Solomon's real legacy. Yes, he built the temple, and yes, he left behind books of wisdom, and yes, he amassed great wealth, but his real legacy was his idolatry. The high places he built were used for over 200 years. And generation after generation followed Solomon by going after the false gods of their neighbors instead of live, loving and worshiping the Lord. Solomon's shipwrecked faith not only ruined his own life and his own witness, thousands of God's people were led astray. And that's what a shipwreck brings. It ruins your witness. God says over and over, be holy for I am holy. How can we possibly represent a holy God to the world around us if our life is steeped in sin? We can't. People can't see or hear Jesus in a sin-sick life. And what's worse is that a shipwrecked faith affects the people that we care for the most. It can ruin marriages. It says to our kids that living out our faith isn't really important. It's okay to say one thing and do another. It blemishes the church. And listen, it wounds those in the church who have known you and loved you and invested in you and worked with you hand in hand for years. And worst of all, 
Worst of all, it dishonors Jesus. Living in open, unrepentant sin is like turning your back on the God who created you and redeemed you. So what do we do with all this? Well, first of all, let me talk to those of you who are unsaved. Right now, you have a stony heart. You're not interested in God. You're not interested in spiritual things. But the Holy Spirit can open your eyes to the truth. And the truth is that you're a sinner. You've sinned against God by breaking His law. And you stand before God guilty. Guilty and deserving of death. But the good news is that Jesus died for you. Jesus did what you and I couldn't do. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law. And then he willingly went to the cross and he died in your place. And right now, God is ready and willing to save you. How? Number one, admit that you're a sinner. Yes, God, I have broken your law, and God, I'm sorry for my sin. Number two, believe that Jesus died for you, that he is the very Son of God, and that he died the death you deserved. And number three, repent. That means to turn away from your sin and to turn to God. Turn to God and receive the love and the forgiveness that he has and let him rule and reign over your life will you say yes to Jesus today now for the Christians those of you in the room watching the live stream who have given their lives to Jesus God gives us Solomon's story as a warning even a king even a man who was blessed with God-given wisdom can fall prey to sin. If it can happen to Solomon, it can happen to you. And I think God would challenge every one of us to check our lives for the warning signs from Solomon's story. Are you rationalizing your sin? Are you trying to convince yourself that the Bible doesn't say what it means and mean what it says? Listen, let the Holy Spirit cut through all of the pride and all of the rationalizing. God's Word brings life. God works through His Word to protect us and to work for our best. Don't run away from His Word. Embrace it. Show your love for God by obeying His Word. Has, his, uh, has sin bent your heart? Instead of desiring God and His Word and His people, do you find yourself desiring your sin? Loving your sin? Does God occupy your thoughts throughout the day or has your sin become a regular part of your thought life? Or maybe you've reached the point where you're chasing after that sin. You've let it take up residence in your life. It's become a part of who you are and you've gotten comfortable with it. And you're pushing God to the sidelines. Please 
Please listen to what God is saying through Solomon's story. If you don't deal with that sin, if you don't bring it to God and confess it and repent, it will continue to fester and grow. And the end result of your story may be like Solomon's, a shipwreck. If the captain of Titanic had listened to the warnings, he could have saved the ship and everyone aboard. What about you? God's given you a warning. There's still a chance to avoid a shipwreck in your life. The question is, will you heed his warning? Would you pray with me?